Hey, live from AC Second listeners, this is Sam Mulberry with our summer podcast series. This series is based on my spring 2018 sabbatical project in which I interviewed 15 faculty who won the Bethel University Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching. As part of this project, I created long-form video interviews with these people to talk about the art and craft of teaching, to talk about how they became teachers, how they think about teaching, how they think about education and interacting with students. So I want to share these full interviews with you throughout the course of this summer. If you're interested in watching these interviews, you can go to cwcradio.wordpress.com and look under the teaching project. If you want to watch the feature-length documentary, Why We Teach, which is based on this interview series, you can also find that at cwcradio.wordpress.com. We'll be dropping interviews from this series onto the podcast feed throughout this summer. Our interview today is with Chris Gerritz, the Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching winner from 2009. My name is Chris Garretts. I am professor of history at Bethel, and I've been here since 2003. I loved history before I knew I loved teaching, right? I, I, the first book I remember reading was a Civil War kind of illustrated history. The first like trip I remember taking was to Washington, D.C. and Mount Vernon. Um, my favorite classes, I can still remember all I had to do with history, but like, as I left high school and moved to college, I had the sense instead, well, I'll do law. Like my, my grandfather was a lawyer, and it was interesting. I knew lawyers from uh, friends' parents. But then I got to college, and I, I took lots of different kinds of classes. I was thinking of international relations as a major, but uh, some of them didn't click. Econ just never floated my boat. I'm sure it's a nice discipline. I, I just wasn't excited about history. I had this medieval historian taught History 101, you know, the first half of the sequence. and. I think like in the second week we were talking about wells in Mesopotamia. And I remember, I, I'm not I don't like ancient history, but like all of a sudden it was like, I, I kind of came alive. And then when she got to the Middle Ages, we read sections of like the Domesday book from English medieval history and she talked about Monty Python. And then I was like, I, I look forward to that class three times a week. And I took the second part of it in, in the spring and it was modern European history. And we listened to Beethoven and talked about the French Revolution. and. The Habsburg Empire and, and World War One. I, I, I kind of realized this is what I meant to do. And then it was, well, it's not just history. Like I remembered then, like there were moments where I had had a kind of teaching role. Like I often tell the story of being in third grade French class. And uh, it was actually, it was a little school and so teachers did double duty. And my history teacher, also, ultimately my history teacher also taught French. And she had heard I was reading this book about, it was either Napoleon or World War II. And she said, hey, Chris, come, why, why don't you talk about that? And apparently I got up and for like 15 or 20 minutes used the map of Europe that scrolled down and kind of walked the whole class through the campaigns of Napoleon or World War II. Um, and that kind of like, that resurfaced my memory as I was thinking about history and I thought, well, I'd love, I'd love to teach history. And then it was just, well, high school, you know, it's, I don't know, I, I didn't like high schoolers that much when I was there, but then people started talking to me about college and I applied to grad school and I think the rest is history, as, as they say. I mean, I loved history and then I realized that that was inseparable from my love of teaching. And so when I was in grad school, it became really clear to me within a year or two, I had a lot of peers who loved history, but they couldn't stand the idea of teaching. Their dream was to have a job with as little teaching as possible so they could write as many books as possible or some of them wanted to work at a think tank and do like security policy. And I, I remember just 
kind of smiling politely. I just, I, I just want to go to a small liberal arts college and teach and you know, maybe write a little bit. So they've always been inseparable. You know, I, I was fine being in class and, and there are teachers who have shaped me, but I think I'm more a student who reads things. And to this day, I read pretty voraciously. And so I think like there was something about that engagement with the text that really defined even like young Chris. I mean, and not just like academics. I think of like in church, you know, I, I didn't really care about listening to sermons or Sunday school, but I loved reading the Bible and I loved checking books out from the church library. So I, I think there's that. I think there then is a little bit of like, as a student, I was probably lost in my thoughts a lot. And I don't know that I was especially active in class, although I also have memories of like simulations, you know, kind of coming alive at the possibility of uh, we wrote a colonial newspaper and kind of dyed it with lemon juice to make it look like parchment in seventh grade U.S. history. Like I remember, like there were some kind of like hands-on things where um, that was great. And, and I definitely know that like travel has always been part of it. Like the moments I remember most were that like trip to Washington and to Mount Vernon, and then a couple more trips like that. Um, and, and like simultaneously, the great regret of college is I didn't spend a semester in France, which I had the chance to do. Uh, and so I, I think a student like, I mean, very bookish, but also like there was a sense of place too that mattered a lot to me. It made me maybe a little frustrated to be stuck in a classroom when I, I could be going somewhere. I am very introverted. I, I like, I, which probably surprises students who only know me as like the guy who gets up six times in semester to give a big lecture in CWC because I'm really comfortable speaking in front of big groups, but it's exhausting. And having like a stretch of three classes in one day, like I can get up for each of those, but it's exhausting. And so the fact that I'm in such a like um, a people person kind of profession um, probably doesn't fit with what other people know of my personality. Except, I'll put it this way: I was thinking earlier today. I'm not sure how people do jobs where there's not kind of some sense of a greater purpose. And it's not, I always feel like it sounds terribly elitist of me to say, like, well, you're just doing a job. But like, there is a sense in which like, I crave purpose and meaning. And it's more important even, dare I say, than paycheck. Right? Like, I saw a study recently saying that college professors, compared to similarly educated people, earn about 15% less. But they're willing to do that partly for the flexibility of the schedule and partly for that sense of commitment and purpose. And, that I think does fit with me. Like people who know me know that I'm pretty deeply idealistic, and um, that probably is easy to see. Like I, I think I come across as a preacher sometimes in in my teaching, and you know that could be aggravating too. You know that's uh, it means I'm set up for disillusionment, and I'm set up to be frustrated by students who don't seem to, you know, catch that purpose and share that passion. But I think that's maybe the part of my personality that, that fits the best. You know, I, the be I always say the best teaching advice I ever got was from uh, Stacy Hunter-Hecht, who is a political science professor here. In my first year, she said the teaching requires you to magnify your personality. You know, it's just a bigger version of yourself. And the bigger the class, the bigger you've got to fill the room. And so I, in, in some sense, in probably ways I don't understand, like the person that my friends know in one or two person interactions is, is magnified in like 140 student CWC lecture or a 30 student World War II discussion. The one teacher who shaped me the most is named Maureen Conway. And I first met her when I was a third grader. I had actually changed schools in the middle of the year from local public school to a kind of new progressive private school. I'd gone from second grade to third grade. And I had to start taking French which I had never studied before, and it was, it was a terrible transition. I, 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 my parents tell me I lost 10 pounds. Like, it was traumatic, but Madame Conway at that point like, met with me separately outside of class, recorded tapes for me to practice with, and so it was my first moment of seeing what it looked like for a teacher to pour herself into a student.
what I didn't realize is she was really a history teacher, she was a social studies teacher. And so in seventh grade, then I saw her in US history, and then once more in high school, and then a lot outside of class. And um, I think a lot of us know someone like this, and they're maybe often a social studies teacher who just thinks like they're going to change the world through their students. And she just loved the idea of America and hated the things that had gone wrong with America, but she was so passionate and so idealistic but also so committed to the study of the past as something we need to do well. So she was very future-facing, but also you know, understood we have to approach the fast, past as a foreign country. And so I, I, I would have always told this story of like Mrs. Conway, Ms. Conway was the, the, the single biggest influence in my life. I'm sure that's the single biggest reason I ended up majoring in history and becoming a teacher. And I, I sent her a copy of my dissertation. She was one of the people I dedicated it to. And then I came back after I got the job at Bethel, I, I went back to her classroom for the first time in probably, I don't know, like 10 years. And she was talking about World War I. And I was getting ready to teach a class in World War I, and I realized, A, I was stealing material. Like, it, it kind of burrowed itself down to my memory, but more like the shtick was the same. <laughs> like, I'm not as probably effusive as she was, but like, there's that same sense of you can't be a compelling teacher if there's not some kind of animating passion. And even if it's in a class that feels like it's required and rote and you repeat it twice a year, you've still got to dig down and find some kind of passion because otherwise there's nothing infectious about the course. Uh, and, and so that, that's what I probably knew. What also struck me though is like she had worked really hard. You know, she was 60 at that point. And like she had clearly put a lot of time into her lesson prep. She had learned to integrate technology into the classroom in ways I had never encountered when I was in her seventh grade U.S. history classroom in, in 1987. And so it, it kind of hit me what I learned from her and what I've known as a teacher is you need passion, but you also need that kind of commitment to craft. And you need to learn to be organized and, and you need to learn from your mistakes. And so it, it can't just all be the energy and the passion and the creativity. There needs to be kind of discipline to it. And I, I definitely learned that from uh, Ms. Conway. When I first started teaching, I mean, the, the natural things were it took nothing to find passion. It took nothing to find a sense of purpose and meaning in what I was doing. Um, it took nothing to find like a love of history uh, and the other disciplines we teach in, in gen ed courses. Um, I think I came with you know, a kind of openness to trying new things uh, you know, very early on, trying to integrate new technologies. So when I first started, that was just PowerPoint. But within five years, that was things like podcasts. Uh, you know, online learning management system kinds of things. Um, and I don't know if this is a good thing or not, but you kind of have an inveterate uh, tinkering sort of tendency. Like, I, I don't rewrite lectures from whole cloth, but I, I, I just hate saying the same thing twice. I always assume there's something that I've got to try differently. Where I really struggled was just like the sense of insecurity. I mean, I just, I felt like an imposter. You know, I, I felt like I was 26 probably the first time I was full-time teaching and what did, what did I know that you know 18 year olds didn't I, I had no sense of like I was kind of in my fullness as a person and so I felt like getting up into any kind of position of authority um, felt deceitful at some level and especially then to be on a team with much more seasoned professors as if they had something to learn from me it was hard but that's where I lucked out like I, I was on CWC with someone like Kevin Craig who'd been teaching here since the 1980s and 
smarter than anyone I knew, knew everything I knew, but uh, at least had the courtesy to pretend that he learned something from me. But you know, it was also deeply encouraging and gently tweaked things about me, but affirmed things he could see in me. And so like a lot of what I've learned from teaching has been from those kinds of mentors at Bethel. And then second, just learning how to read student evaluations and student feedback of other sorts. You know, at, at first, you're prone to take it all as just world-shattering criticism. And it took about five years to start to learn how to discern. That's a really insightful comment. And I might not want to hear it, but I should really heed that because that's a different kind of personality than me. That's a different kind of learner than me. And uh, to rip the bandage off the other less useful comments, but also you know, not to let your head get swollen by the other kinds of things students might say, but to discern you know, the, the praise that's really merited. I mean, that, that took five years, I'd say, to, to really get a handle on. The first five years are probably pretty typical for a lot of people. You're just kind of learning who you are as a teacher. You know, the wisdom I received right away was you need to teach something three times before you really know how to teach it, and that was certainly true. I think the next stage was um, when Sam Mulberry and I essentially were asked to take over as the coordinators of CWC. And that was just the first moment of being invested with significant responsibility, and it just you know, in some sense, it felt like a lot of weight. I mean, even by that point, that was a venerable course that had been around for about 20-some years, been taught by the best professors at Bethel, and you know, for better or worse, it had a lot of tradition behind it, a lot of structure to it. And to be told, I, I mean, not just you know, keep the lights on and, and, and steer the ship, but you know, actually think about how this needs to change. And so that, I, I can kind of see that as you know, the next stage. Maybe I'm still in that stage of being given responsibility even beyond like, my little niche of the institution. And so I, I think there are other like, many stages as a teacher, like you know, starting to experiment with some of these technological innovations like podcasting and trying online teaching. Um, I think like, the first time I took a course to Europe um, was a pretty big moment. But I think mostly, in a sense, it ratified I mean, or it, it, taking people to Europe affirmed things I knew I did pretty well, but it helped me see more clearly why they worked and gave me ideas for what to bring back into the classroom. So I don't know if I've moved on to the next stage. I keep feeling like there's got to be, I mean, there, there's kind of end of career stage that's off in the distance, but I, I'm kind of on the lookout for what the next stage, because I'm still helping coordinate CWC. I've been department chair. I've, I've been on like the gen ed committee. I've um, developed new courses. Like I've gone through a lot of those kind of mid-career things and I feel like I'm still there. I knew in grad school I wanted to be at a place where teaching was the most important part of the scholarly vocation. Um, and not only did I come to that place, but I came to a place where I know all sorts of people who hold that view. And it doesn't mean they don't care about research or writing because most of them do, but their first priority is teaching. And so, I mean, it includes people who, uh, who aren't here anymore. It includes Kevin Craig, I've mentioned. You know, was really my first mentor, simply because we got thrown onto a CWC team together, and two other members of the team, for different reasons, couldn't be there the first month. And it was just Kevin and me trying to figure out how to, how to do CWC. Um, it was G.W. Carlson, which is odd, because I didn't really see him teach a whole lot, but he did so much else to shape my sense of vocation, my identity, my, my interest in pietism, obviously, and what that means for me as a teacher. I think Stacy hunter hacked was just an enormous influence on me, because I got to teach side by side with her. And she was great um, you know, giving me advice, but in puncturing things about me, but also you know, equally as significantly and very subtly at affirming things about me and, and kind of helping me grow into my confidence as a teacher. Um, and so the, there is a whole wave of people who have left. 
But then there are people I get to teach with all the time. Like Sarah Shady is just about the best teacher I know, and she just seems effortless at integrating discussion into lecture. I mean, we're, we're so conditioned to act as if these modes of teaching are at war with each other somehow. And for her, I mean, they're just, they're, they're a Mobius strip or something. You know, just She seamlessly moves from that luxury stage on the stage mode into, now, what do you think about that? You know, let's, let's talk about that. And she's really good at affirming what a student says, but then pushing it. You know, it's a good kind of Socratic philosopher trick, I think. Like, that's right, but have you thought about this instead? Um, I just admire Amy Papinga and the kind of passion she brings to really disparate fields. I mean, she teaches Islamic studies, environmental history, she does CWC, um, she's done American civilization, and I mean, she is the epitome of that, like, magnifying the personality in the classroom. And I just feel lucky that I get to see the kind of outside of the classroom version of the personality. I mean, I think my biggest hero as a teacher is Sam Mulberry, and partly because he would disclaim any sense of being a great teacher. And he is such a good example of how service and teaching are two sides of the same coin. And again, we create these categories as if they're, as if they're disparate. And it all is about pouring yourself into the lives of students. And I see him do that as a lecturer in CWC. I see him doing that, taking students around the streets of Paris, talking about Hemingway and Ezra Pound. I see him do it uh, in the ASK office, tutoring student after student after student. I see him mentoring CWC TAs and bringing them into his house. And, and so a lot of this doesn't even fit the formal kind of category of teaching. And then there's the stuff that I think people think they know Sam from, which are things like podcasts and online CWC. And so there's that sense of the teacher as an innovator. And I hate to even say it because I'm just embarrassing him by saying this right now, but um, it's the joy of my career is that I get to collaborate with Sam on so many different projects. It took me a long time to realize what it meant to be at a Christian liberal arts institution. I, I grew up in the church and in churches very similar to what a lot of our students come from in some sense, in Midwestern kind of pietistic evangelical churches. But I didn't have any encounter with a model of education like this. Uh, you know, local public school, K through 12, very secular, private you know, college prep school, state university in Virginia, and Ivy League school with a very distant religious heritage. You know, I had nothing to prepare me. I didn't get any thought to working in a place like this until my second year on the job market. And I was really wary of it, because I, I, had, I had no idea what it meant. You know, it suggested fundamentalism to me. I had to be talked into coming to a place like this. And it really, I'm glad I looked at a couple other places and then came here, because then when I finally interviewed Bethel, I had a better sense of the questions to ask, of how to interpret the answers I was given. But still, I had to come here and know what it was like. And I, I just, CWC was such a formative experience for me. I mean, it filled in just huge holes in my own knowledge about not just church history and theology, but even philosophy. You know, I'd, I'd taken one philosophy class in college. Um, but that was where I could see, not just as an abstract ideal, but as a lived experience of here's what it looks like for people of serious, warm-hearted faith from different traditions to come together in a kind of community and to say no question is out of bounds. And the questions we ask are the biggest questions you can possibly ask. And there is no settled answer. And in fact, we're going to give you all sorts of conflicting answers to who am I and who should I be? You know, who am I in relation to others? What is a good community? What is a good life? How do we answer questions like that? Uh, is it just the Bible? Is, is 
what is the weight of given to tradition or to reason, to science? And most importantly, how do, how do we live beyond our cloisters? How do we live in the world? And is there even a separation between the church and the world, between culture and the Christian community? Like, I'm not sure I had asked those questions of myself in any serious way. And so I, I've taken that spirit, I hope, into all my other classes, which is there is no question that should not be asked here. You know, and we might not even find a good answer, but um, precisely because we are Christians, because Jesus Christ is the word made flesh through whom everything came into being, including time and space, including physical and human creation, and because we're supposed to love God with our minds as much as our hearts and our souls and our strength, that um, this is a way to honor God and ultimately to serve others, to love our neighbors. And there's a kind of freedom that comes with it. And this is the hardest thing, I think, for someone like you know 24-year-old me who is suspicious of this to understand was I am much more free in a Bethel classroom than I was uh, in a Yale classroom. I mean, the way it really hit home was uh, I remember talking about Hitler and Stalin in a 20th century European history class. And I was the TA running a couple of sections. And I remember a moment one night thinking like, we should be talking about evil. And I don't know how to do that at Yale, exactly. And I'm sure there are people who do it well. I just didn't know how to do it. But I, I'm, I'm never afraid to do that here. We spent a whole week on the Holocaust in modern Europe. And it's heartbreaking every single time. But, um, and we talk about the problem of evil. We ask where God is. And we listen to Jewish voices who decide that God was not there. And we try to honor that perspective. And then we pray together. And we confess our sins together. So I, I just know I couldn't do that except in this kind of um, institution. A student should study history because you really have no choice. I mean, the question is just, will you do it well or will you do it poorly? We are given a sense of the past, according to Ecclesiastes, you know, and they, with the very odd exceptions of people who have some kind of chronic amnesia, they just can't recall. Like, we all actually have memory, at least. And we are creatures who inhabit not just space, but time. And we all do things with the past constantly. We construct nostalgic longings out of it. Um, we uh, discern patterns that we expect will carry forward out of it. Um, we attach political significance to it and cultural significance to it. It forms our identity. We we're not constantly reshaping our identity every single moment of the day. It's been determined for us in certain ways. And so we can either leave that unexamined you know, without any kind of critical reflection. Or we can pause and we can think about what the past means to us. And we can learn to do that in a disciplined sort of way that thinks about how have I, how have we as a church, we as a nation, we as humanity changed over time? How have we not changed over time? What caused those changes? Did they have to happen in the way they did? Um, what, what was the context behind all of that? Why is it complex? And then in the end, we have to do what actually defines history. We have to make meaning of all those things. We have to interpret those and say, maybe even this was bad that this happened. This was good that this happened. This is challenging that this happened. So I mean, I think we call it a certain discipline that has certain kinds of ways of thinking, certain methods, certain types of evidence, certain expectations, rules for the game that we call history. But even like in our history class, I don't want people to feel too bound to that. I instead want a kind of sincere, thoughtful, patient reflection on the meaning of the past. 
And most of our history majors will not, not be doing that professionally or vocationally, but we will all do it in some way. And you ignore then history at peril to yourself and to the church and to our nation and to our world. Um, I, I'm biased, but I, I think it's perhaps the most important thing we do. All other disciplines depend on it. But where this not exists, there's not another discipline that can do what it does because no one else lives just in the present or just in the future. We all have to start with our past. And, and so like, I think we really are at the core of what it means to do certainly a liberal arts model of education. For some students, the reason you should study the past is because you've been given a passion for it. I mean, you, in a society that doesn't seem to care about the past, just can't help being excited about visiting that museum or, or picking up that book or even playing that video game or watching that movie. And so for some of us, there's a deeper kind of longing, attraction to the past that, that we need to pay attention to and uh, think critically about that, but we need to value it in a society that does not tell you to value that in any way. Um, and not to value it too much, you know, not to let it control us, but to honor that and to then find ways to hone that interest and to challenge it and to expand it and, and to realize, do it with people who have different kinds of interests and different kinds of pasts too and not simply to follow your own very particular interests, but to do it in community, I think is very important. It matters that students study the humanities because they're human first. Um, I mean, you know, in the same sense, we study humanity through science, you know, different sorts. Uh, we study through arts, but the humanities, so what I mean by that is history, English, philosophy, languages, rhetoric, um, you know, I'll leave the arts out of it for now, but certainly those fields. And that Bethel, I think we fold biblical studies and theology into it. We study that because there is no meaning to this apart from the humanities. And I know this sounds grandiose, and I'm a historian saying it, but if we strip the humanities away and try to be humans simply doing sciences or professional study, there's no meaning to it apart from whatever the market gives to it. I mean, even the sciences, like we're in a moment where now we're, we're told all the time that sciences matter a lot. There's an enormous amount of uh, value and not just monetary value. That, that changes, <laughs> that, that can go away. I mean, I'm, I, I think there's more intrinsic value, but we need the humanities to ask questions about why these things matter and what we're being prepared for and what a good life is like and um, how we treat each other and how we're shaped um, by our context and by our past and how do we think well about all these things and what is our relationship to God and what does that imply for our relationship to each other. I just don't think other disciplines can do that on their own. I think they can only do that insofar as they're drawing from the humanities themselves. Now I think the humanities have a lot to learn from the other disciplines as well. You know, modes of reasoning thinking about the ways in which we serve others and we prepare for lives of service. I, I think, well, we'll talk about the arts and creativity and beauty. Like, I don't think the humanities can exist in a vacuum by themselves, but I really do think if the liberal arts is the core, the core of the core has got to be humanities if humans are doing it. I think the fine arts are the thing I noticed first about Bethel when I came here. I mean, I'm not, 
Like, I, I went to a pretty good private school that did a decent job. Like, right off the bat, like, I remember acting and writing a play about Greek mythology in third or fourth grade. And I, I remember doing watercolors and ceramics, and I sang in two different choirs for six years. And, I, and then, like, in college and grad school, that all went away, and I didn't pay much attention to it. And I think when I got here, I was struck to notice how much public art there was and how little attempt was done to even contextualize and explain it away or justify or rationalize. It was just like, this is part of what a Christian learning community does, is it does art together. And uh, so that includes everything in the different galleries and in all the stairwell. I mean, in places you just never expected, all of a sudden you've seen someone trying to express something. You know, a, a deep longing, a deep anxiety, the, um, the meaning of God, the meaning of existence, and in ways and in modes of communication that I don't tend to do. Um, and then to realize how much you hear the sounds of music being made, and to realize how much it mattered to some of our students, like they're in a history class, but what really matters is the theater performance that they're preparing for. In as much as the humanities provide meaning, I think the arts provide meaning in a different sort of way. The arts reach after questions that my discipline struggles to answer in some ways. Um, the arts especially are good at grasping after the mystery of, of God and the mystery of human existence and paradox and not expecting a resolution to them um, in a way that maybe a history essay sort of does push you towards a resolution, a finding of some sort. Um, the arts reveal to us what it means, I think probably as much as anything, to be made in the image of God because we're made in the image of a God who creates. I mean, that, that is the takeaway of Genesis chapter one for all our debates about human origins is that God is a creator and we are made in the image of a creator. And so we create. And we do that in a lot of different ways that we don't always call fine arts, but those are the clearest expression of we are creating um, for, for reasons that aren't even always clear to us or don't always seem to have any kind of value the market would attach. Or, and so like, that's such an indispensable part of the liberal arts that there are places where we explore creativity, mystery, beauty, I mean, things that Christians sometimes struggle with. It's happening most um, purely in the fine arts. Studying the sciences matters to me because it's a way of understanding God. It's a way of seeking after a God who is not a God of simply fate and caprice, but is a God of purpose and intention and design and to some extent order, although that's probably more chaotic than we'd like it to be. So I don't think by themselves, study of mathematics, of physics, of biology, chemistry, geology, all those things, you know, can, I don't think by, by themselves they can get a God, but they get at dimensions of God that um, as a humanist, I, I, I probably am tempted to ignore, you know, to take for granted, you know, that I'm, I'm drawing air right now, that, um, that gravity is acting on me, that there is mathematical precision to the universe, and that there's beauty in that as much as there's beauty in, in the arts. Um, I also value the sciences, though, because the sciences in the same process expose us to the majesty of God, but also then expose our limitations as humans. It doesn't mean we can't push up against those and we can't maybe push them back further or transcend them, but I think one thing about the sciences is you come against moments where you just don't understand any further. And A, you need the help of other people. 
So I deeply appreciate, probably more than in my field, the sciences have the sense of building upon the work of others, of doing something in a kind of global community that's at its best self-correcting. I was a lab tech in my dad's molecular biology lab for two summers in high school. And there's just kind of um, a patience to it. Like you can't, I mean, experiments are not going to work. Theories are going to fail. And, and, um, and you realize, you know, there, there's a limit to what I understand, but I can learn from this other person, or maybe there's a different way to do it. And, and so like, it keeps pushing you. And so it, it's striking to me sometimes that um, all these things are happening. And I don't even see them very clearly. I feel, I feel foolish striving to explain this because I know what's happening and I have some appreciation for it, but there are corners of this very small institution that I've never seen where all this uh, questing is taking place. You know, in the greenhouse that I've walked by a million times and never set foot in, people are seeking to understand something about creation right now. Um, and you know, in a math lab that I've never set foot in, people are seeking to understand something about the kind of intellectual order of the universe and pushing their limits. And so part of what strikes me then is that a big part of doing the Christian liberal arts is you just have to have this trust in your colleagues too. That um, in some grand sense that I can't see, we're all working together in, in our, you know, in our library carols doing research or our labs doing research in our interactions with students. Uh, this is all in some ways working together for the good. Is teaching an art a craft or a science? I'll just show my cards. I will say, of those three, teaching is least a science. I, I think there are ways that we can study how teaching works. As a historian, I believe really deeply in complexity as an organizing way of thinking. And so I am almost tempted to believe that teaching is irreducible complexity because it's, as my graduate advisor said, molecules with minds of their own. You know, I, I'm generally kind of suspicious of our ability to reduce any kind of thing that's fundamentally about human interactions to some kind of science. Because I, there are certain classes I've taught 30 different times, and every single one of them, even though it seems from the outside to be 99% exactly the same, is fundamentally different. Because at the very least, you know, the 17 students in my CWC discussion section are all different. The way they interact with each other is different. I am different than I was. You know, I'm, I'm fundamentally changing in certain ways. The, the world beyond us is changing. So even though it seems like the history is the same, the narrative is the same, the number of tests is the same, I'm just suspicious. I think the number of variables is so great, I'm not really sure how to think of teaching as a science. And so probably to a fault, I tend to view scientific studies of teaching with a great deal of suspicion. And I'm um, not prepared to act on the applications that they would be, su be suggested. So obviously then I think teaching is more of an art and a craft, and I'm not even sure how to differentiate between those two. So I'll just say it's a craft in the sense that it's something that you need to hone over time. So it's, it's artisanal. You know, it's not something everyone can do. I am firmly convinced not everyone is meant to be a teacher, and you can't just give them best practices and give them a little training and say, now you're gonna be a great teacher. I, I really think it's a calling, and it, it's a spiritual gift. That's, that's the New Testament. Right? Like, and so in that sense, teaching is about recognizing that giftedness and then finding ways to hone it. And some of that's formalized education. Most of it 
is experimentation, it's observation, it's conversation with fellow teachers, with students, you know, it's feeling your way towards a better solution to something. And so in the end, maybe that then pushes it ultimately to art. First of all, it is creative. You know, every time I've, I've had the chance to develop new classes and I've borrowed ideas from people, but in a sense, every new class is a blank canvas. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, the palette that I'm working with is not entirely open to anything. You know, if I'm teaching a modern Europe course, I've got to start with a certain time period and certain geography, but the first thing I ask is, well, what is modern and what is Europe? So like, there's a great deal of openness to it. And um, it's art then also in the sense that I do think then there's a kind of uh, genius to it. I, I really don't think all art is equally good, right? Like I think we all have a kind of flicker of recognition of when we see art that is truly wonderful. And I think that's probably true of, of teaching. And I think that's why we can all answer that question of like, who is the best teacher you ever, like there is something about that person that I don't think could be handed down through best practices or even identified through a scientific study. Um, there's a kind of flicker of genius to it. And I don't really want to say anything more because <laughs> I, 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 I certainly don't want to make it sound like I identify that in myself, but I do think it's something miraculous the way that good teaching um, can shape a, a student, can shape the cheap teacher herself. I almost never talk about teaching by itself. Teaching is only meaningful as part of the larger project of education. And partly I, I say that because we're in a moment where sometimes teaching and learning get set in opposition to each other as if somehow the teacher needs to die so that learning, needs, learning can happen. Or like in our uh, promotion and tenure criteria, uh, teaching and service and research get differentiated. And they're dissimilar in some ways, but they're fundamentally connected to each other. They are all part of a larger project. Um, I can only teach because other people have done research, and to some extent because I've done research. I mean, that's why I have anything to work with in the history classroom. People have been studying that in a disciplined fashion using evidence, analysis, and interpretation. I can only do what I do in a classroom because people here are serving in ways that I don't see and uh, I can only teach because my students are committed to learning. And then you can flip all those different things. My students can only learn because I'm committed to teaching. And so I, I, I tend to resist the notion of, of just talking about teaching. I'm much more comfortable talking about education or about the liberal arts as a broader kind of tapestry in which teaching is one important thread. I love to dabble in metaphors for especially the liberal arts, right? Because it's so hard to explain to people what the liberal arts or why they matter. And, and so I reach as a good humanist for metaphors. And so, I mean, like one I really like a lot as a historian is that a liberal arts education is like a medieval cathedral. So why is it like a cathedral? First of all, it's built up over a very, very long period of time. And honestly, it's being renovated, it's not static. But it's, it's a generations long process. You begin it, you know, I don't even know who the first person to begin this person was, but they began it knowing it would not be finished, right? And I'm gonna take it up knowing it will not be finished. And um, so there's a sense of you've inherited something, and you're handing it off to people. And part of what I, what I try to force myself to think about is as a college teacher especially, um, like we want to claim all sorts of things that we're doing with our students because we live in a culture of evidence and assessment in which there are outcomes and we have to demonstrate our worth and our success. 
And I want to say they've done a lot of learning before they came here. You know, especially now that I've been a parent for a few years, I understand how much all those 18-year-olds have been shaped in fundamental ways before they get here. Now, part of what we're doing is not necessarily unlearning those things, but at least questioning them. But a lot of parents, a lot of coaches, a lot of mentors, a lot of pastors, and a lot of other teachers have been shaping these people. And so in that sense, it's a cathedral. You know, that part of the structure has been built up as I come in and then put my stamp on it. Um, it's like a cathedral because a lot of it is anonymous. You know, I mean, maybe someone will remember something of a class I did, but um, I, I'm doing a kind of labor in which, you know, I, I shouldn't expect recognition. I shouldn't expect fame for it. Instead, it is a kind of like artisanal craft in the same way as a stonemason or whatever you call the people who made stained glass. Like, they didn't sign those things, right? Or if they did, it was as part of a guild, as part of a larger collective. And I think that's really important to, because otherwise there's a lot about education that can feed the ego that I stand up in front of a room and I give the grade and right like we need to remember like this is a generations long process that a lot of people are working on and most importantly it's to the glory of God right like in the sense the medieval cathedral is supposed to lift you in a sense beyond this world I think there is something about a Christian liberal arts education that to some degree lifts you beyond this world or at least causes you um, to contrast this world as it is with this world as it was created and this world as it's meant to be. And so there is something transcendent about what we're doing. The second metaphor I feel less comfortable with, but I think there's something there, and that's World War II and the Holocaust. So when I teach my World War II class, I use the Ken Burns, Jeffrey Ward documentary series, which is mostly good, like there are problems with it, but one of my favorite parts comes near the end uh, when he's interviewing Paul Fussell who eventually became a great literature scholar, um, was Dan Ritchie's mentor, wrote this great book on the Great War and Modern Memory that all of us read in the 90s. Um, but Paul Fussell, during the war, was just a young guy, I think, from Pennsylvania who was an uh, infantry lieutenant. And he reflected on um, being told by Dwight Eisenhower about D-Day. And Eisenhower said it was this great crusade we're going on. And Fussell said it landed, it was a dud. Because they all, all they were doing was gambling, drinking, woman. It was a great adventure, maybe. Plus, there was a sense of fatalism. But like, there's no sense of there's a greater purpose to it. It was just the adventure, right? And they may or may not die. And then there's a moment where he talks about coming into Germany in like February, March of 1945, and his unit happened to liberate a concentration camp. And I forget what he said exactly, but I don't think he knew that was there. He certainly wasn't fighting for that purpose. Like, almost no American soldiers were fighting for liberty, for democracy. They did surveys. That, that was never what they said. They certainly were not fighting for Jews. They were not fighting to end the Holocaust. And he got there, and I can't talk about it without crying, but because that's what happens to him, is he said, like, he got there, and to his surprise, he realized like, it was a crusade, like there was purpose here to it. And so it's awkward to make this comparison because in a way there's nothing like studying history or French literature or chemistry and doing World War II or liberating concentration camp. But what I took away from that and what I talked about with students in that moment is we do things and we think we know the reasons we do things, but then there's the purpose, which maybe has to be revealed to us later. And maybe it doesn't even come from us. I mean, as a Christian, maybe that's, maybe that's something coming from God and maybe we need other people to help us understand it. And I think fundamentally, 
that is the nature of education and certainly a liberal arts institution. It is about finding purpose and trusting that you will discover that, not really knowing what it is. Like our students come here thinking they know the reason they're at Bethel. They think they know why they're taking these classes. I think I know why I'm teaching these classes, and in some sense we do, but I think fundamentally we have no idea. It, it, will, it will become clear to us as a glimmer here at various points in our life. We'll have a flash of recognition of like, that's why I was in that class, that's why I read that book, that's why I had that major. Um, and probably not perfectly in this life, we realize it. Or it'll have to happen as, you know, as we become parents or grandparents or as we face death or as we face injustice. But that's the other metaphor I play with. In a sense, like, we even use language that sounds very idealistic and then we tend to, just, we tend to shun it and snicker at it and think, no, it, you know, it's, it's a job or it's the grand adventures and then you have a kind of moment where you realize, no, here was the purpose, and it was woven in all the time, and you didn't realize it. And all you can do is to be faithful and to trust that you were doing what you were called to do. And as a student, I hope it means that they trust, like there's a reason we are teaching the way we do. And I trust that I'm making good decisions about how I do those things. And I trust that even in moments where I really doubt this place and what I'm doing or doubt my discipline or doubt my abilities as a teacher that there is purpose in it and it's just very unclear and it might take 50 years to realize what that is. So when students come into my classroom um, I have some expectations and then like I also want to think about what are the things I don't expect of them. I don't expect they love whatever we're going to do as much as I do. That's partly because I teach a lot in gen ed. So to a degree, a lot of my students are there not really by free choice. You know, certainly in CWC or inquiry seminar. I mean, even like if they take like World War II with me, like that's to fulfill an objective. I'm not sure they really want to be studying history even if they think they're drawn to that. But like I don't want to expect of them they share my passion. I do expect of them, first of all, that they will work hard. I mean, I don't understand at a place like this where such a large percentage of the students are athletes or musicians or performers of some sort where they spend a lot of time engaged in, in disciplined activities where they've got coaches emphasizing work ethic that they would then come into a class and think they don't have to work hard when this is by far the most important thing they're doing if they're at a university. So I, I feel pretty comfortable saying I'm going to expect hard work of this. You know, if passion motivates that, that's great. If just like an intrinsic sense of work ethic motivates that, that's great. And as a last resort, if all the incentives that penalize lack of hard work are going to incentivize it, that's fine too. Willingness to be challenged, you know, at least an openness to this is going to push you. And, you know, and that could be a lot of different ways. For students, it's you know, simply taking a CWC test is hard. You know, and like studying and amassing information and retaining and fine padding, that's hard. For some, it's like the conceptual challenge. I think increasingly that's true. The hard part is like being willing to open yourself to a completely different answer to one of life's fundamental questions. Like I do want students, not to say it's going to be easy, but to say that I'm willing to do that. What I can't stand is students who feel like they can proceed through a class at a liberal arts university as if they will somehow be unchanged by the experience. And like it can just be a box they will check off and they will get a certain grade that they've earned. Like, I do expect at some level you come here because you want to be open to being challenged. And that I will then support that in important ways. 
And then I think third, just a, a fundamental level of respect. You know, I, I mean, I guess least importantly for me, like I, I've probably got to the point in my career where I, I don't, there's probably a stage in my career where like I overread body language and student questions and kind of, and now it's like, that's fine. You know, I mean, I, yeah, I think there's a level of respect for the work I'm putting in. More importantly, you know, respect for yourself and for each other. And in the history class, respect for the people of the past. And, and that can be hard for Americans. I mean, simply to say the past is meaningful, it's important to say that there's something we can learn from the people of the past, you know, in a, in a society that tends to be, like C.S. Lewis said, is prone to chronological snobbery. Right, like that, that, that's something I do expect. Like if we're gonna study 18th century Europe, like I, I want you to remember that those weird French peasants um, and those English factory workers are very different from you, but they are still made in the image of God and they still share some of the same anxieties and loves as you and their lives still matter. And we do what we do as historians partly because it's a way of resurrecting them. It's a, it's a way of fighting against death. You know, I think that's maybe the central thing that historians do is death is an active force that is seeking to obliterate not just our life but our memory of things, to wipe out evidence of existence. And historians are trying to fight against that, to resurrect it. And so that takes a certain level of them respect for what I'm doing as a professor, what your fellow students are doing, what you're doing, and then for the people who are studying. Whether you like them or agree with them is, is immaterial. You at least need to respect them. Relationships matter a lot to teaching in a few different ways. So, um, first of all, in the classroom. I, I do think that I, I want students to trust what's happening. Like, a lot of what's happening in the class is really not within their choice. You know, as they go on, probably more and more things are free to them. You know, the decisions of how they're going to complete an assignment, what topic they're going to study, how they're going to use their time. But at a certain level, like, they need to trust, like, I've made some good decisions at the outset that are going to constrain what we're doing with this time together. And that's also part of, like, the curriculum. You know, I wish they would trust there's a reason you do this in the sequence. But I think that trust needs to be earned in some ways. And I think that builds through spending time together. You know, so I would expect, like, in the CWC section, you know, not a lot of trust when it starts. Why, why am I being forced to take this class? Maybe I even took something like this in 11th grade. Like, why do I have to do this all over again? Why do I have to, you know, I want to be uh, an accounting major. Why do I have to do all these things that are irrelevant to that? And so I think partly what happens um, is we get to know each other. And I can start to ask things of them that, you know, they first did grudgingly, they first did out of a sense of compulsion, and now they'll almost do out of a sense of like, I, I want to do that for you. Maybe that even happens in lecture in a way that I can't see. You know, initially they were just taking notes because they took notes, and then there's going to come a lecture where I'm going to pause, just ask them a question, and they're going to go with me on that. Maybe because now we kind of have this sense of knowing each other. Now, that seems very ephemeral. I mean, a class of 140, even in like a small group meets once a week. It's so much more deep than once we get into history classes, especially, and you know, most deeply into like a 300 level. You know, major course where, first of all, they're only there because they've made a very unusual choice to study a field that most other people won't study. And where small departments, they probably had me two or three times. Like there, I can start with a level of trust and they'll go with me and we are really going to get to know each other well. And then most purely of all is I have the unique good fortune to teach um, a, a J-term travel course. 
And the relationships you form there are the deepest of all that I found. I'm, I'm going to a wedding for a couple of students who went on the last one on, on Sunday. Um, one of them babysat our kids all the time when we came back. And so it's, that's you know, the first place I think about relationships. But the second, and you know, probably actually the one I think more about, is the nature of how we do this is, um, I'm not teaching by myself off on an island. I'm part of a department, I'm part of CWC as a program, I'm part of a larger division and college and university. And with different levels of intensity, I form those relationships. And those are important in other kinds of ways. You know, um, the relationship I have with people like Sam Mulberry and Amy Poppinga and Chris Moore and Sarah Shady matter because those are people who hold me accountable in ways. Those are people who give me new ideas. Those are people who encourage me. Those are people who maybe see things I'm doing well and poorly more clearly than I can see. Um, they're people I can vent to. I mean, they're all the things that are necessary in like any kind of organization, but I think they're really important to teaching. Like I, I think of the importance of my relationship with Sam Mulberry is we spent a lot of unstructured time just talking to each other, whether it's on a train between Paris and Munich or in a stairwell somewhere or over the summer teaching online CWC without any expectation of what's going to come from it, except that because of that relationship, we know that we can just kind of start a conversation, know that a seed has been planted for something. And eventually, the relationship will allow us to work together and trust each other to do different aspects of it. And before you know it, we're making documentary films or virtual museums, or we are rethinking the structure of a course, or rethinking part of the J-term trip that we do. Um, and I, I couldn't have done any of that just by myself. And I couldn't have done that just with like a pre-assigned kind of partner. Like that took a relationship that's built up over 15 years um, that's incredibly fruitful. Um, and deeply meaningful to me and then indirectly to students. I think if you talk to my former students, uh, I would hope the first thing they say is what I said about my former teacher, about Ms. Conway, was that she was a person of passion. Like, I don't think like, I probably seem like a passionate person on first glance. Like I've got that you know, kind of Northern European, especially Swedish kind of reserve in some respects. Until you get to know me at all, or you catch me on the right moment, and you realize that I, I'm, I'm prone, I have a temper, <laughs> I'm prone to anger about things, I, I'm, I'm prone to tears and sorrow. I'm a person of deep fear and of deep hope. And if teaching is this magnification of personality, I would hope and trust that they would say that has come through in some respect in classes. I, I got, um, I think it was even a handwritten letter from a student who's teaching now out of state actually and you know, he'd, he'd been okay so like, he wasn't a stellar student I didn't think of him as someone I knew especially deeply but we had a couple classes together but he had had um, a class a World War II class with me and it happened to be a semester that was difficult in a lot of respects it was difficult because two of my best friends had died in the midst of it and there finally reached a moment in that class where like it just kind of all bubbled over. And like it was an exceptional, extraordinary circumstance. It normally doesn't reach this pitch, but like it all like I just felt like the passion in all of its complicated fullness was there for students to see and there was no filter whatsoever. And it very rarely gets to that moment. But it was not it was not just like, you know, misplaced kind of sadness or anger or anything. Like it was deeply connected to what we were talking about in that moment. And it happened to be the Holocaust, which you know generally evokes deep feelings. 
and he remembered that. Like of all the things, there is that sense of um, a deep passion um, animates, motivates, shapes whatever I do in the class. And he said that he felt like his task as a teacher was to figure out what that would look like for him. And it'll look, look different for him because like, he's a middle school teacher where he has a lot less freedom in designing these experiences. He's working within a curriculum given by a school district or a principal or a department. And that looks different at that developmental stage of how you relate to 13-year-olds versus a 20-year-old history major. But I, I hope they all have some sense of like this does not come from a place of I'm doing it because it's my job, even though it is my job. I'm not doing it simply because I don't know what else to do. I'm not doing it because um, there's nothing else I could do. I'm, I'm doing it because I deeply love God, that the best way of doing that for me is to love history, and the best way of doing that for me is to teach students. And so I hope all of those loves in some way you know, are at least kind of humming beneath the surface and occasionally are breaking through and, and coming out and students remember it. Because um, like, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who's always shouting and, and screaming. I'm not always, it's not always above the surface. But I think students who have had me a few times recognize it, and they can start to see it in a lot of different ways. If I were to give advice to new teachers, the first thing I would say is you've got to find a trusted mentor of some sort. You just can't do this by yourself. And so hopefully you're part of a team. That's the best way this happens, because you're, you're, you have a shared investment in something. You hold each other accountable. But whatever it is, you need to find someone whose opinion you respect. And you need to um, give them a glimpse of what you're doing and you need to be able to listen to what they say. And if they're good, they're gonna be probably encouraging most of the time. And then they will find one thing to tell you to maybe try differently. You know, that's the best feedback I've ever got or I've seen given is people in CWC who would go up to a colleague after a lecture and say, that was fantastic. And let me tell you five reasons that was fantastic. And then, hey, have you thought about trying this instead next time? And so you need someone like that. The second thing is you need to view this as a long-term process. Yeah, and it's very hard because I took everything to heart my first year, but you have to remember you're gonna do this more than once. In fact, you need to do this several times before you have any idea what you're really doing with it. And you need to do something that, again, I think Americans are especially bad at, is you need to take a long view of this. Of You're gonna be doing this career probably for 40 or 50 years. You're gonna be teaching that class how many dozen times. And at least wait like two or three times before you really make any kind of like ultimate judgments about it. Like you really need to give yourself license to try and to fail and to learn from those failures before you really can step back and make a kind of final assessment of this, I'm really good at this, or this class is really going well or poorly. And the third thing I would say is embrace the chance to teach something that's not in your field of expertise. I've, I've talked a lot about CWC here and there, at this point in time, there is nothing in CWC in which I have any kind of expertise, at least as my graduate training would lead you to believe. And even when I first started, even when we did like 20th century stuff, I get stuck doing things like 20th century religion, I'd never studied 20th century religion. I've come to see that CWC is probably the most important class I teach for a lot of reasons. But one reason it works is that I am never leading as, well, I am the authority, I am the expert, I am the fount from which all wisdom will be received. So it pushes, even though it's a lecture-y kind of class, it is not a sage on the stage kind of class. Instead, it's someone who is just a little bit ahead of the students, asking the same questions the students should ask and modeling what it looks like to answer those, student, answer those questions. 
and I think it's important to keep that in mind because so often as a new professor, those are the things you grumble about. Those are the things, well, I would never choose this, but that's the cost of coming here is I'll have to do that class instead. And instead, you need to flip that around and actually say that's wonderful. You don't get to do something where you are an expert. You instead get to do something where you're a little bit closer to being a learner. And that division between teacher and learner is, 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 is fuzzier. And it might be in your 300 level course where you are tempted to assign your book because you are the content specialist in that class. Now, th those are great classes too. There's a depth there. But I think like especially as you're learning how to be a teacher, and who your students are and what you're trying to do with them. I think in some ways it's easier to do in a kind of general course where you are pushed out of that comfort zone. Because like as a first year teacher, like to the extent you feel secure in anything, it's like in, well, I wrote a dissertation about that. I took three seminars about that. And and so like you're you're tempted to think that's the most secure place to be as a teacher. Instead you need to accept like the best places one that seems scariest, where it feels like you don't have that mantle of authority to protect you from the students and their questions. You instead need to embrace that um, kind of fear and, and redeem it somehow. My first advice for students is um, to learn gratitude. Like, don't take it for granted that you have come here. Like, people have sacrificed to make it possible. Um, and that's a lot of different, I mean, it's probably your parents, you know, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, or, um, you know, there people financially have sacrificed, but also, like, that is a moment to pause and kind of think about what has made you who you are, and to express that gratitude to teachers and coaches and pastors and mentors, whoever it is that shaped you. You know, don't, don't just assume you're entitled to be here. You deserve to be here. You're one of 3% of the world's population right now who gets to do anything remotely like this. And over the long course of human history, it's a vanishingly small percentage. And you are not better than all those other people who will never get access to something like this. So start with gratitude. From that, you'll get humility. And you will then maybe learn the value of it. You will start to learn that despite all the messages you've received from lots of people, and that might include parents, and it might include your church, and it might include like our recruiting and marketing people, the reason you are here is fun and fundamentally not about like, um, it's not a consumer relationship. You are not a customer. I know it feels like it because you or your parents are paying something for a good or a service and you think you're gonna get a diploma that will get you a job. That, that's true. Um, that, that's what's called an incidental, right? Like that, that is not the fundamental reason why you're doing something like this. Because if that were, you should not be here. It's a waste of money. There are a lot easier ways to do it that are a lot cheaper that will get you exactly the same job other places. And so, out of that sense of gratitude and humility, embrace the fact that you are at a place where um, A, you have the chance to follow your passions. You can study things with a considerable amount of freedom. You have a chance to be a theater major or a history major or maybe it is like a marketing major. Um, like figure out what that passion is and follow it and, and find people who are gonna feed it and challenge it and, and hone it. Um, but also trust that there are things that you cannot choose that are also working towards the ultimate goal of being here, which is, it's, it's a cliche we use too often, but it's, uh, it's fundamentally true. You are trying to become a more whole and more holy person. You are being shaped into the person God means you to be. And it will not stop here. 
I mean, you are not a finished product when you get that diploma from the president or it comes in the mail a couple months later. But this has, probably more importantly than anything since you know, your very first couple years, has set you on a trajectory, has planted seeds, has churned soil, has given you skills. You know, it, it's done a lot of what's going to shape the rest of your life. And if you really embrace that, and you both trust what your teacher is, what the curriculum is trying to do, and you find your passion and follow your curiosity, you do it out of spirit of gratitude and humility, I am fundamentally convicted that God will work through that in ways that you can't even recognize probably. And, um, and it will help you love God, it will help you love your neighbors, it will help you understand who your neighbors are. They're not just the people who look like you and believe like you and vote like you. Um, it'll help you be a better citizen, it'll help you be a better parent, a better spouse, a better friend, and yeah, a better worker too. But I just hope students are, have some capacity to recognize that. Because otherwise, like, if you don't think about that, if you don't challenge what you've been told, you're going to think this is just a transaction in which you are going to give X number of hours and effort, you will receive Y grade and that will then lead to job Z. And what a small view of human existence for people who are made for eternity, not for mortality, for people who are, are not just of this world and its employment patterns and its market preferences. Like, there is so much more to being human and this is your chance to live into that and to understand that and to set yourself up for the rest of your time in this life of being a human. And so I, that's a lot to take in. That's a terrible piece of advice just to kind of like sum up, but that's what it's about, right? It's, it's so much more than what you've been told. And I'm so glad you're here to, to start to figure that out and to glimpse what that might look like. So Bethel, my advice to you is um, to stay the same and to become di different, right? So become different in the sense that we have not figured it out and we are supposed to be responsive to the needs of the world. I mean, that's, that's the Christian mission. You know, it, is, it has never always been the same. It has always changed. Part of our job as a college is to, to ask better questions of what it means to be the church and what it means to be ourselves. And we should assume that we are getting things wrong or at least that the circumstances around us have changed. And so we need to figure out how to be different. And I'm not telling you what that means, but we've got to have the sense of um, vocation and hope to believe that we can do that. But more fundamentally, because historians don't just think about change over time, they think about continuity. Bethel, you need to be the same. <laughs> you need to be the Christian liberal, liberal arts university that, I don't know if you've always been, but you became at a certain moment. Like there is a reason someone like me came here and for the first time in my life felt like God was speaking to me and saying, you should be here. You should be at a place where Christians are doing art and putting it up without trying to justify it or explain it. You should be at a place where Christians are doing physics in a world-class fashion. You should be in a place where people are giving far more than they're compensated for to help students ask and answer the most fundamental questions of existence. I was drawn to this place for a reason. Like, I didn't have to come here. I had another offer on the table and I felt a very strong sense of this is where I wanted to be and it shaped me in so many ways. You know, I've, by studying the history of this place, I better understood my history and the history of my denomination and 
we're being tempted right now in so many ways to abandon that. We're being tempted to say that the liberal arts don't really matter, that all we need to do is pay lip service as if it's a little marketing slogan, and then to cut away the heart of it and to tell students, don't do any more of that than you absolutely have to, and instead, get a job. And we're being tempted to say the most important thing we should do is to be safe, that we should never roil our constituents. We are being tempted to forget that one of the most important jobs of a Christian liberal arts institution is to be the cutting edge of the relationship between the church and the world. We're supposed to be the bridge in so many ways, that we are not a, we're not a barricade, we're not a wall, we're not a boundary, we're not keeping the world out. Like, we need to be willing to have the courage of our convictions to say to the world, this is who we are as a Christian liberal arts university in the pietist tradition. And to not try to make excuses for that, to not try to hide from the consequences of that, um, but to say fundamentally this is who we are. And if we can't be this, then we should close. Because we don't exist simply for the purpose of being Bethel. And we don't exist even for the purpose of keeping me employed. We exist for the mission of God in this world, you know, as we've been given it. And if we can't do that in the way that I think we've been commissioned to do it, then you know, we should close, sell off our assets, and, and plant all sorts of other better kinds of ways of doing it. But I think we can. Like, I, I don't think Bethel's story is done. And I just wish we'd be willing to actually say, here's who we are and not then follow it up with, and here's what the employer wants us to be, here's what the market wants us to be, or even here's what the domination wants us to be.